0: Our second reading comes from the second book of Kings, chapter 2, beginning with the first verse. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went, and stood at some distance from them, as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up, and struck the water. The water was parted to the one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double portion, a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. He picked up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? When he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Here ends our second reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can, see, you can see the scene before us in this scripture reading. You've got Elijah, the great prophet, the most famous man in all of Israel, getting ready to retire slash being taken up in a whirlwind. And as he's there, his great lieutenant, his number two man, Elisha, keeps following him. And again, Elijah's like, listen, not where I'm going, don't come with me. You stay away. And Elijah's like, no, I want to be there. Wherever you're going, I want to be there. And then they go on and actually there's a bit of the verses that were cut out and this happens a second time in those verses and then happens a third time when they're by the river Jordan. Elijah's like, hey, what I'm doing, what I'm about, you don't really want. Trust me. And Elijah's like, no, I do want. And then he asks him, what do you want? He's like, well, I want a double portion of your spirit, which is they would give... uh, Basically, the way that, what that really means is those who were the eldest son would get the double portion. Those who were to be inherit, those who were to carry on the mantle, the legacy would get a double portion of whatever goods uh, were to be offered of, of someone. So here, Elijah's saying, I, I, I want to be the person who succeeds you. And I can see Elijah looking at him and saying, do you, though, do you really want this mantle? I mean, Elijah, if you remember, when he was first a prophet in Israel, he was the only one who was standing against Ahab and Jezebel. It was Elijah versus all of them. And there were times when Jezebel was trying to hunt him down and kill him to such a degree where Elijah was ready to give up his own life and say, just take my life from me. There's nothing left. This is really too much for me to bear. And yet God was still with him at that period. It was only after that really dark period, that period where he was alone, when Elisha, his lieutenant, started to join him. And so you can see Elijah asking Elijah, do you really want this? Do you know what this is about? It's not just the fun stuff where I get to celebrate and be the most famous person in Israel. It's also the hard stuff before, you know, where my life was in danger from Jezebel. My uh, Facebook feed and Instagram these days are verifiably blowing up uh, with all my friends who were in New York City this weekend. Because in New York City is a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Inn riots that launched the modern gay rights movement. And apparently it's also because of that it's also World Pride is being celebrated in New York I think for the first time. And so it's estimated that there're 6 million people who are visiting New York for the Pride celebrations this weekend. I mean New York's already crowded enough as it is. I can't imagine what it's like with another 6 million people. And they're all there, and again, all these images are of these wonderful parties, and these outrageous outfits, and today is this, you know, record-setting parade. One of the images that's come across my feed several times is a, uh, is a sort of signpost that's somewhere in Greenwich Village, uh, where there's different signs, each of a different color, of the rainbow, and the top says gay, and then... Bisexual and lesbian and transgender and intersex and queer and two-spirit all the way down And the bottom the last sign uh, says sponsored by MasterCard (laughs) I'm serious (laughs) MasterCard was smart about this But it makes you think as everyone's up there celebrating the 50th anniversary of Stonewall And celebrating uh, what is surely to be a party to end all parties the question that I have to ask is like, are those people really ready to inherit the mantle? Do they really want it? They say they love pride and they love celebrating it and they're getting all their selfies in front of the stone Inn. in, but I can't help but ask, I'm like, do you really want it? Do you really know what it's about? So, the 1960s were not a particularly kind time for LGBT people in the United States. George Chauncey, in his famous book, Gay New York, uh, has pointed out that actually, in the early part of the 20th century, there was a fairly vibrant LGBT life in New York. And it wasn't until the 1930s and the Depression where people started to impose uh, new levels of morality to cut down on deviancy, deviancy. And then after World War II, homosexuality was linked to communism, in some sort of odd way, uh, such that being gay was also something that could label you as a traitor to the country. You're not only a morally deviant person, you're a traitor to the country. In the 1960s, uh, the American Psychological Association, of course, categorized homosexuality as a mental disorder. Uh, Any sort of homosexual sex was illegal in 49 of 50 states. Uh, Illinois was the only state where it was legal to have sex if you were gay. Uh, Within the city of New York, which was a place where uh, a lot of gay people lived in the 1960s, uh, you regularly had uh, people being beaten up, included by the police. Uh, You regularly had people being killed, and then no no sort of follow-up on that. Uh, You had regular entrapments in the 1960s where the police would, planes closed, police men would literally go into gay bars and hit on someone and wait for them to hit back, wait for them to respond to those and then immediately arrest the person. Uh, And then you also had uh, large-scale blackmail operations, run oftentimes by organized crime, where they would, uh, you know, people, usually prostitutes, would intentionally entrap someone, uh, get their information, pictures would be taken, and then the person would be blackmailed for thousands of dollars. Uh, and again, back in the 1960s, that's quite a bit of money. And there was really no enforcement about this. In fact, the police, were, uh, the police were, if anything, the ones carrying on a lot of the harassment. Now, during the 1960s, you did have people in New York City and other places working to further gay rights. The Mannequin Society was probably the most famous group that was doing this and was making slow gains in the 1960s but the gains were slow, and life was not that great. In 1966, on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village, which is right opposite Christopher Park, um, the Stonewall Inn opened its doors uh, as, a, as a gay club. Now, the Stonewall Inn was, uh, and is today, uh, a kind of... Um, somewhat disappointing building when you go into it. I remember, I remember hearing about it and you walk into it and you expect something, you know, here was a moment where history happened and you're like, oh, this place, you know. <laughs> sort of like when I visited the Alamo for the first time, I was like, gosh, it's a lot smaller than I thought it was gonna be. <laughs> and the Stonewall Inn was well known uh, for its dancing. It was the biggest uh, dancing place for gay people in New York City in the 19- from 66 to 69. And particularly catered to a teenage and 20-year-old, people in their teens and 20s. Again, the drinking age in New York at the time was 18. And again, as always, you could get in, you could sneak in if you were a little bit younger. So you had people from, you know, 15, 16 uh, on up, dancing away. And there were two dance floors as you went in. uh, A larger one, again, two jukeboxes that people would put the music on they wanted. The front dance floor was, you know, intense and fun. The back dance floor, I guess, was even more crazy uh, dancing. Um, there was no running water at the bar, uh, so obviously there's no ice in your glasses, and they just had tubs where they just dunked glasses in and then refilled glasses, so there were periodic outbreaks of hepatitis for those who uh, went to patronize the bar. The bar was owned, by the, owned and run, like most gay bars in New York, by the mafia, fairly explicitly. Um, everything was overpriced, drinks were watered down. Technically, it was run as a private club. Uh, to get around any sort of bar licensing issues. And people would be charged at the door and then charged uh, lots of money when they got their drinks. It was not very well uh, done up. And there's also only one exit. So if any fire happened, basically everyone would die inside. Uh, so the fire trap dance club for teenagers, people in their 20s, was the Stonewall Inn. Well, in 1969, in June 1969, uh, the head of the Vice Squad in Brooklyn, New York was a guy named Seymour Pine. And he was focused on trying to crack down on mafia action. Um, And he focused in on the gay bars in the southern end of Manhattan uh, in order to try and stamp out some of these mafia things because the mafia was running a lot of their actions out of these gay bars. So, for instance, the Stonewall Inn upstairs apparently was one place where uh, people would run... Uh, their heroin deliveries to various customers in southern Manhattan there was also uh, quite a bit of prostitution being run out of the Stonewall Inn and obviously blackmail the Stonewall Inn was was particularly well known for blackmailing wealthier gays who came in there uh, where again someone hired by the mafia would go up hit on the person get their information figure out whether they're worth anything and then try and get them back and then proceed with their blackmail operation so Pine wanted to shut down the Stonewall Inn among some other places. And in a few weeks before, they raided a couple other bars. And actually, the week, that, that, that week, the week of the riots, on Tuesday night, they'd already raided the Stonewall Inn, but then it opened up the next day. So Pine was frustrated and said, OK, this time we're going to get them and we're going to put them away for good. I want to shut down this place for good. So he got together a bunch of people, uh, or his group of about 8 to 10 cops. He got together a patrol wagon to show up. And there were some undercover cops that went in initially to sort of mark out who the mafia people were, who worked at the bar, uh, so that when the cops raided, they could, they could pick them up. And then at around 1.20 in the morning, they raided the Stonewall Inn. Now, this night, uh, on June 27th, so this is the morning of June 28th, technically, uh, it was really, really hot. Supposedly, it was one of the hottest days that people could remember. And again, there's no air conditioning and it's inside with no ventilation and people dancing. So I'm guessing inside the Stonewall at the time, it must have been in the mid to upper 90s and humid. So everyone's soaking wet um, and had a fair number of drinks in them at this, at this point. Cops come in, close the doors, turn on the lights and say, all right, place is being raided, we want to get the IDs from everyone in this bar. Um, they end up dismantling the bars, they seize all the liquor... Uh, they try and put the people who were from the mob in the back. They also put anyone who's cross-dressing in the back. It was against New York law to, if you were a man, wear women's clothing, or if you were a woman, to wear clo- men's clothing. It was literally against the law. There was a certain number of articles of clothing. That if you were wearing articles of clothing of the opposite gender, you could be arrested. So the police started this. But the problem is, this took a lot longer than they were expecting. Because not only was the bar full, but a lot of people didn't have their IDs on them for obvious reasons. And so this was slowly happening, and they let a few people out of the bar, and again, it was hot, and they wanted to wait outside and wait for their friends to come out. Meanwhile, this is right in the heart of Greenwich Village, the the gayest part of New York, and people started coming and seeing what was going on. And so a crowd started to form outside the bar. And this started going on, and then the the attitude... She's right there. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) That is a fabulous dress that Diaz on. So the crowd starts forming outside. Now, meanwhile, inside, the cops are in the back room trying to figure out who's violating the cross-dressing laws. So apparently, they're actually forcing uh, people who are in women's clothes to expose themselves to see whether or not they're actually a man or a woman, so they can arrest them. Now, the people who were for to whom this is happening to weren't very happy about this, and the attitude of the people inside started to turn pretty nasty pretty quickly. Um, as more people came out and they were loading the mafia people and some of the people who were, who were wearing, uh, you know, clothes of the opposite gender, or at least birth gender, into the patrol wagon, uh, the crowd started to get really angry. Uh, and they barely got that first patrol wagon away, but they needed another one because there were so many people they were arresting. And now there's just this awkward moment where the crowd was there getting larger and angrier and the cops were there just waiting for this patrol wagon. Meanwhile, they bring out this, uh, as the story goes, this butch lesbian who was having none of it, I mean, absolutely none of it, and was screaming, hitting the cops. There were like three cops trying to get her in the car, and she, kept, she got out of the car and kept screaming, and screaming at the crowd, being like, are you going to help me? Are you going to do anything to help me? And they got her in the car a second time, she got out a second time, and they had to take four cops to get her in the car the third time. Meanwhile, she's screaming. Meanwhile, some of the crowd finally gets angry enough. They start taking some pennies and start tossing pennies at the cops, because again, this is all a payoff operation, or so a lot of people thought. Um, so you have these pennies being thrown. Meanwhile, you have some bottles being thrown. One of the cops gets hit with a bottle in the head. There's uh, repair work being done on the, uh, on the subway station around the corner. Some people grab some bricks and start tossing bricks. All of a sudden, the cops realize at this point, they've lost control of the, of the situation. And they then barricade themselves inside the bar. The crowd, however, is still not having any of this. They start getting Molotov cocktails and start throwing them through the windows of the bar. And again, there are also people still being arrested inside the bar. The cops inside the bar literally have to find the fire suppression hose and put out flames as more flames get tossed in. They even get a parking meter from the side that was broken down in Christopher Park and start using it as a battering ram to batter the door down, the heavy door down of the Stonewall Inn, to get and, again, free the people who are inside and who knows what to the cops. Meanwhile... The cops inside, uh, thankfully, are led by this guy, Pine, who was a former veteran of World War II, who's like telling all the cops to calm down and not shoot into the crowd. So here we have a potential situation where the cops could start firing into the crowd just to get out of there. They're scared for their lives. Meanwhile, one of the undercover female officers sneaks out, sneaks out a back window, calls for, for uh, support, and all of a sudden you have, within 20 minutes, you have the SWAT team, what they call the, the TPF in New York, the riot police show up, in addition to about 30 other uniformed police officers. At this point the gays still don't go away because they are angry as all angry and they're just, they've had enough of it and so all of a sudden they'd be, you had especially these these flame queens one of the people that were the leaders of this revolt were these uh, flame queens, these were the people who were super effeminate as teenagers uh, got kicked out of the house and they still like being they're not cross-dressing but they're wearing eyeliner and other sort of things that make them seem more, and they just own their effeminacy, and they're the ones that are leading this whole thing So they, like, are mocking the riot police, doing, like, chorus lines, mocking the riot police as being sissies and daring them to attack them, which, of course, the riot police drives them absolutely bonkers in the 1960s, okay? So they start chasing after these guys, and they just run around the block and do it from the other side. And this goes on for hours until about 5 in the morning, when finally people dissipate. But it was pretty clear that the cops were embarrassed and that the gays kind of won the day. And no one had ever, this had never happened before. The gays had never fought back. This 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 was just, everyone was like, wow, what happened? So the next night, people show up again. Thousands show up in Christopher Park. And when you ever had a car come into Christopher Park, they start, you know, you know, shaking the car so that it goes somewhere else. And they start yelling that this is their street. So the cops pull up this, the riot police again. And the same routine happens again, where the riot, they keep mocking the riot police and running away. Every once in a while, the riot police grab someone and beat the crap out of them and send them to the hospital. But the others don't care. They're still there fighting. On a smaller scale, it happens on Sunday. And then as the reports of this come out on Wednesday, there's some more activity. But by Wednesday, the cops have sort of said, like, you know what, it's not worth fighting this. Maybe we just have to let them be. And from that moment onward, from that weekend onward, the entire tenor action sort of focus of the gay rights movement in New York changes. No longer are they just going to take things rolling over. From here on out, they are going to demand fair treatment. They seek out non-mafia people to open bars, and they're successful... They pressure the mayor over the next year plus to stop uh, the police harassment. And within a year, you have a whole new era of gay life in New York City. That's what we celebrate this weekend. And as I was thinking about this and reading through these, through these accounts, all these first-person accounts of what happened, I was wondering, like, what are the lessons for us? I come back to that story of Elijah and Elisha. Are you, are you ready to take the mantle? What is, what, is, what would it look like to take a mantle of Stonewall for us here in this congregation? For starters, one thing that impressed me about the Stonewall Inn, the stories of it, were that this was a place of refuge, a real spiritual place of refuge for people who were kicked out of their house, uh, who had nowhere else to go. They could go to the Stonewall Inn, wear whatever clothes they wanted, and dance their hearts out with their friends, or potential lovers. It was one place where they could freely express who they were without judgment. And that's why when it was shut down, even though it was a seedy dive bar that the more respected members of the gay community didn't like, for those people who were there, for those people in their teens and twenties who were there, that was their place. It was a place where they could be themselves, and darn it, they weren't going to have it taken away. What a good aspiration for a congregation to be a place where people can be themselves as wholly and fully as possible without fear of judgment. Where you can come to a place like First Congregational, ideally, and be all of you, wear whatever you want, without someone else down the pew being like, you know, like you see the person's wearing this this day? How is that possible? That that wouldn't have happened at the Stonewall Inn. How can people express themselves and be free to be there? That's something I think we can aspire to. Or when you think of who are the people who actually rioted? Who are the people who rioted? Some of these flame queens, the stories I was reading, because again, there have been extensive interviews, you know, as time has gone on, of the people who were involved in the riots. Some of these flame queens, these people were homeless on the streets, a good portion of them. And there were these accounts of these kids on the streets who uh, had to resort to prostitution and stealing in order to make ends meet. A lot of them suffered from various degrees of mental illness. They were as marginalized as marginalized got. I mean, they were even marginalized within the gay community that was incredibly marginalized in the 1960s. And it was those people. It was that butch lesbian being drawn out of the bar. It was the transgender people who were being thrown in jail. It was these flame queens who were... Uh, being marginalized, those are the people that, according to all the accounts, were the ones that led the riots on that first night and subsequent nights. The marginalized of the marginalized. Talk about a call to action for a congregation like ours that cares about liberation theology. How can we be better about welcoming the truly marginalized into this space? What would that look like? Who's not here, when you look around? Who in a place like Houston's not here who, who might need a place like this? One of the things that allowed these flame queens and others to revolt is that they had been so beaten down and so marginalized, they had nothing to lose. How can we aspire to more solidarity with people who are in that marginalized place? So that when they want to lift their voice up, we can stand with them or give them a voice. Or if we are part of that marginalized community, get others to stand up with you. The final thing that strikes me is just the militancy of it. The anger of it, the righteous rage of it. So often, when we see injustices in society, we just go along and say, Oh, well, you know, that's just the way the world is. Last week in Milwaukee, uh, a few of us were out at a bar, and there was this guy who was uh, a little bit too intoxicated, but uh, lamenting the state of the world, and finally us, a bunch of clergy, looked at him and said, well, what are you doing to change it? And he's like, well, I'm complaining to you right now. (laughs) And I'm like, well, you look around this table, all of us here are doing a lot more than that. Um, And we gave him a hard time, and uh, he wasn't very happy about that, and then left. Um, (laughs) But that militancy, we see these injustices in the world, and what are we doing about it? What are you going to do about it to change it? These people eventually had enough and were able to do something. Again, this is the 50th anniversary of Stonewall and World Pride, and I'm happy about that. And we're going to have some rainbow cupcakes, and we've got a lot of rainbows here, and it's a great thing to celebrate. But I think we would be doing a disservice to those people who paved the way if we didn't remember what actually happened and what mattered for it. And to keep coming back to that question of our text... Are you ready to take up that mantle? Are you ready to take up the mantle? And if so, what would that look like for you?